0: So we are um, finally here, Uh, the day uh, that we've been kind of working towards throughout the month of October, uh, where for those of us who feel led, we'll we'll make their pledge to be a part of this new position that we're calling Director of Youth, Family, Life, and School Ministries as uh, our way of investing in the future generations that are emerging um, around us. And to get here, we've talked a lot. Uh, we've we've talked about a lot of things. Uh, we we've talked about how uh, this is kind of a weird time to be raising kids, uh, and uh, I'm convinced that it's one of the more challenging times to raise children because uh, we're so isolated from uh, what would traditionally be our family units. Um. For most of human history, we would raise children surrounded by family and extended family. Um, You know, there's a reason why we'd say it takes a village to raise an idiot, I mean kid. Um, And when I was a kid, I was both, so whatever. Um, But there's a reason why we say that, is that historically, human beings were pack animals. We survive in community. And... The way culture has shifted, a lot of us don't live near our extended family. We've kind of moved. And that creates a very difficult experience, raising kids. And as I said, um, I think the first, one of the two weeks, uh, or one of the early weeks in October, uh, if this were just a social club, this position would still be a good idea. And, and it would still be something that we need. Uh, but it's a lot more than that. Because uh, we uh, as a church, as followers of Jesus, uh, seek to pass on this grace and this forgiveness, this mercy, and really this abundant joy that Jesus offers um, to it not just everybody, but especially to our young ones and those who are growing up. We, we want to help, help them know Uh, that uh, through Jesus all kinds of things are possible. We want them to grow up and experience that love. Uh, We also talked about some of the challenges that that faces. Um, I, I talked specifically about how the emerging culture, so like think like millennials and Gen Z, although when you talk about generations, really don't necessarily mean chronology, I mean like philosophically in the way that they think. Although there's usually a lot of overlap there. Uh, that the emerging generations um, think differently and approach the world very differently from say like the baby boomers. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that communication technology has changed so much. and as I recall, we looked at, at really even like historical examples of how shifts in the way we communicate will, will drive really big changes in culture. And uh, as kind of a funny example, there's, uh, nobody really saw the big changes happening that came about like with the internet and with instant communication uh, on a global scale. Um, if you ever watch some of the old Star Trek, if you're a nerd, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and I'm, when I say old Star Trek, I mean like 60s, 70s. Uh, they had all of all, what, what the, the writers imagined as super advanced cool technology. But their communication and information technology uh, was actually pretty dated. If you think about it, yeah, they could communicate instantly with each other, but if they needed information, they would have to ask the computer. It was all a very centralized sort of thing. There wasn't, in other words, what we would call the internet. Even sci-fi writers didn't really see it coming. And instead for them, uh, even though they were trying to be very imaginative about what the future would be like, they still... um, they still imagined uh, authority and information as centrally uh, localized. Uh, Then the internet happened and changed everything. And suddenly information and authority became, uh, or has become very democratized. And that's both good and bad. I, I can't decide whether, you know, which, which, which way to lean on that? It has positive and negative effects. And for an institution or a group of institutions like the church, which has historically been a source of authority, but also a source of, of help, uh, a source of information, a source of compassion, um, that can be really challenging because we're no longer playing a role in society or culture that we, we, have used, we are used to. I think, as I said, a couple weeks ago, if somebody was really uh, struggling in their marriage, uh, thinking like, you know, Anywheresville, somewhere in the Midwest, they would think, well, you know what, I need to talk to my pastor. That's just not the case anymore. And we can moan about that, and we can get really afraid, or we can realize that, that as the culture shifts, It is offering us as followers of Jesus, in a really weird way, a gift. The church has weathered massive, incredible, fundamental changes in the reality around them over our nearly 2,000 year existence. And every single time we've done that, we have emerged with different ways to talk about who Jesus is and what he means. Because while our message is timeless, the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us, the way that we communicate it will always need to be timely. And in our efforts to think about what it would mean to have a, a, a staff position whose goal is specifically to uh, create relationships, establish relationships, and and also uh, enhance our ability to reach out to the families that are already a part of our church as well as the school families who aren't connected to Jesus, uh, a lot of what we need to be thinking about is how will the way that we communicate be different? For example, um, as followers of Jesus... We believe that humanity, broken and sinful, is in need of saving. God sent Jesus to uh, take on our humanity, take on our flesh. He died in our place for our sins. And when God raised him from the dead, God defeated death. And in our baptism and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are attached to and buried with Jesus in that baptism. We are raised to new life with Him. And new creation life is now alive within us. And it is now our role to spread that good news and live out that new creation to everybody we encounter in our world. Here's the challenge. How would you tell that story Without using words like sin, grace, um, forgiveness is kind of iffy, uh, righteousness, or um, resurrection. Because if somebody is not connected to the body of Christ, with the exception of maybe forgiveness, they don't. They just don't use those words. It's not really in their vocabulary. And that can either be really scary or it can present a very interesting opportunity for us to rethink and challenge ourselves to communicate to a generation that doesn't understand. Uh, I find these kinds of questions very invigorating. And the body of Christ being what it is has gone through worse. And so what we want to do Uh, As we've been saying over these last several weeks and through town hall meeting and written communication is we want to invest in that future because we believe that we have a legacy to build. And this church in its 60 some odd years of existence has done that well. And it's time to do it again. Uh, We believe that the way of Jesus is... um, Is not just personally meaningful or anything like that, but it's the way to orient our reality. And that means that uh, I, uh, to put, use very modern uh, ways of talking, that means that we want them to grow up and be able to tell their stories within a big story of redemption that God is telling through Jesus. Because it is a good story, as hard as moments in it may be. So now I'm going to uh, talk briefly about the part that I don't like talking about. Uh, I think a couple weeks ago I said in a meal, it's like eating the broccoli, you know. Uh, I don't mind broccoli, but I'd rather have most anything else. Um, To talk about just our goals for fundraising, and then I'll make this an actual sermon and go into the text that we had read. We are are looking to raise about $80,000, and uh, we arrived at that number because we've been able to secure uh, $60,000 of matching funds from the Yvonne Damerof, um, uh, fund, or, um fund. There's another word that is gone because words are hard. Um, endowment. There we go. And uh, the, the reason why we arrive at that whole number is that it gives us money to uh, pay for incidental expenses, moving expenses, but also ministry like, to youth can be really expensive. So it gives us a little bit of money to put there. And then it'll pay for this salary for the first year. And then over the next couple of years, it will slowly start to dwindle, which means that our, our just general budget will need to start accounting for it. So it gives us a little bit of a ramp. That's where we're coming across these numbers. Um, At the end of the sermon, I'll invite those of you who have the cards that you received in the mail, uh, if you'd like to take part in uh, the ritual of kind of bringing up your pledge and kind of laying it before here in our liturgical box over there. Um, I fully understand uh, plenty of you have um, already maybe mailed your pledge in or you have done so online. If you prefer to do it online, ChristABQ.org. And it's under give in the top right-hand corner. Plenty of ways to give. Um, but there's also, of course, my standard disclaimers. The first is, if God is not laying this on your heart to give money, um, and you, you're looking at your own budget, and it is such a tight stretch, and, and you don't feel led to, and, and all of that, please dis, do not feel obligated. This is... We, we love you. We're glad you're here. End of story. Do not feel uh, any compulsion or we are not compelling you. If God is not putting this on your heart, please don't. Um, if if you're not in a place to do uh, to give now and six months later something happens, things change, we're not going to say no. Um, and, and, and that's totally fine. Um, the second disclaimer is that this, uh, this pledge, this information is private. I will not have access to it. There are two people in the congregation who do, uh, one of them being our bookkeeper because somebody has to process it. Whatever magic she does, I, I stay away from that. Um, but this is private, and it's almost entirely between you and God. And um, the two who know aren't, they're not going to tell me, not like I'm going to ask. Um, so that's, that's where we're headed with this. Okay, that's, an, that's enough of that. The broccoli's over, so now we get to the, the good stuff. Um, two texts today have to deal with money. And uh, as, as kind of a Jesus scholar, like I, I can't let go of the uh, interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Herodians about uh, the attacks to Caesar because it's so interesting. But I'm going to limit myself to speaking very quickly about that. Um, because there's something embedded in there that I think we need to to think about. Uh, When Jesus um, asked for the coin and says, you know, whose inscription is on this? Uh, Based on the the, uh, different mintings and different styles of denarius coin from that era, um, we kind of know what was on that coin. And it was probably some combination of a picture of Caesar Tiberius as well as a couple of titles, one being uh, the divine son of Augustus, or Julius, so because Caesar technically had the title the son of a god, uh, which is a little awkward. Somebody's holding that coin in front of the actual son of God. Uh, And then often on the other side of this coin was the phrase Pontifex Maximus, high priest. So when Jesus said, give to Caesars what is Caesar's, there's an underlying barb there, because if you then ask the question, "Well, what does Caesar thinks belong, think? What does Caesar think belongs to him?" There we go. The answer is everything. As Caesar Augustus and the worship of, of the emperor is the fastest-growing religion at the time, he thinks he owns everything. And then Jesus says, "Give to God what is God's. What does God actually own? Everything, by definition. And so there's a choice. Can you feel that tension there? That's the reason why the, the Jesus challengers back off real quick. Because they realize, oh, Jesus is operating on a different level. N- nope, nope, I'm bowing out because he will crush us all. Um, and that's a really, I think, important way to think about generosity and giving and stuff like that. It's like, what actually belongs to God? It's everything. And there's an uncomfortable reality, uh, to some of us anyway, and I think this is more of an American thing than, than other, uh, in other cultures, is that we have a tendency to think that the things that we have, the wealth we've accumulated, uh, is because we were really good at what we did and we worked really hard and we seized the right opportunities. But what we often gloss over is the fact that we have less control over our opportunities and over our place in life than we would like to think. I mean, the ideal of an, of an American business person being a self-made man or woman, uh, like we love that idea. But it's kind of a myth. There was a great book uh, called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell who looks at the idea of success. And he talked about it like this. Um, if you take, uh, he used uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. You know, Computer moguls, uh, one of course now deceased. Uh, they, there's no question that they are, um, or that they are/slash were, uh, bright, uh, very good at what they did. Um, Bill Gates was actually a very, very good programmer. Steve Jobs was kind of eh, but he was—he had a very keen business sense and a good, uh, was really good at understanding hardware and, and where you could kind of take things. Uh, and we tend to look at them as like pinnacles of success, right? And so what Malcolm Gladwell did was kind of back up and look at at the stories of their lives. They were both born right around the same year, late 50s, which had an interesting knock-on effect because they came of age, and by that I mean like high school-ish, early college, right as this weird thing called a computer was becoming slightly more available to the average person. And perhaps not coincidentally, uh, they grew up in households that, um, shall we say, had, had means. I think Bill Gates' parents were like lawyers or something like that. And because they had means, they had the ability to provide their kids opportunities to be exposed to and get to learn how computers work right before everybody else. So when it came time to start figuring out what they wanted to do with their lives, uh, and they really, really liked these computer things, they were already ahead of a lot of people and that gave them a pretty significant leg up as they were founding their companies and moving forward. Um, Now, their stories are a little more complicated than that, um, but I think what's worth pointing out is they had no control over who their parents were. They probably didn't have a ton of control over what their parents allowed them to get exposed to, and in this case, computer hardware and programming and that kind of thing. Um, But a lot of their success probably goes back to that. As a more personal example, and I, I haven't gotten a text from him from first service because uh, I didn't get his permission to use this story, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, my dad, he originally started working for the Coca-Cola company as a night shift trash man. It was basically third shift on a loading dock um, at a plant in Anaheim, California. Um, college dropout, because they had me, ha, and he retired uh, quite a few years ago. Now, as a vice president, uh, he sat on the board of Coca-Cola North America, and I, it, he obviously worked hard. He's very people smart, very keenly aware of like how kind of people work. Um, he uh, got into what's called supply chain management before that was like an actual thing. Um, he helped kind of do all the supply chain stuff for one of Coca-Cola's many brands that I won't name, but I promise you, you've heard of it. Um, so it's, it's definitely a story of success. And he did a lot to, um, to encourage that. <laughs> he, to, he made a lot of really good decisions. But when I've reflected on his story, and especially the parts that he's shared, uh, as an adult, there's some interesting things about it. Um, very early on, He had a supervisor who recognized, she just saw something in him, maybe like people smartness or that he was a hard worker or something like that, and she gave him some chances that he would not have normally gotten. He had no control over that. What if she had been replaced? What if she decided to do something else? Uh, That story could have gone very differently. Yeah, there were plenty of situations where he made the right decision at the right time, but he he pretty consistently uh, got hooked up with uh, managers, supervisors, and eventually directors and VPs who again saw something in him and again was willing to give him some chances even though he was the only guy on the floor without an MBA and so on and so forth. Take any of those away and this story goes very differently. And so, all that to say that as much as we like to say that what we have is because we are really good at what we do, or we've worked hard, or saved well, or something like that, there's some truth to that, but ultimately, we have less control over our life circumstances than we think. And that's an uncomfortable thought. But at the same time, what we do have, therefore, is a gift. It's just by the grace of God. And that can be very freeing because our human, human nature will have a tendency to take what we have and hold on to it and protect it. We want to hoard it. But if you can imagine, this kind of posture is exhausting. The posture of, of recognizing that everything that God has given us is a gift and we are merely caretakers of it, is a posture that sits more like this. We hold it, but I don't feel the need to grab and squeeze it. This is a posture of rest. This is not. And so we get to Paul. Uh, Paul, he's addressing this church in Corinth, and there's a whole thing that we're not even going to get into. Um, But he's encouraging their generosity and he wants them to give generously. And he uses some metaphor, like agricultural metaphors, um, that I do need to say real quick have a tendency to get abused. And I want to put my foot down and just publicly make a claim for a moment. Uh, Paul will call giving um, sowing a seed of faith or sowing a seed. And if you... um, if you run with that metaphor in the wrong way, it'll sound like what Paul is saying is that the more you give, the more God will give you back. And there's a, a, a thread kind of running through American and other parts of the world, uh, the, the Christian church. Uh, and this is not a word I use a lot, but um, it's just heresy uh, to say that if you, the more you give, the more God is going to give to you. And that's just not what Paul is saying. Uh, It it is heresy, and I condemn it. And I really, really want to be clear on that, because it can be used to manipulate. Um, And so you get some people who are very, very good at raising money in the name of Jesus, scare quotes noted, uh, saying, the more you give, the more God will give to you, so therefore give me all your money, and then God will bless you even more. It is nonsense. Um, What Paul is more carefully saying is that that generosity is an invitation. And in kind of a straight linear sense, yeah, if you are able to give more, that can have a whole lot bigger effect downrange. But the harvest isn't for you. The harvest is for those you are able to bless. And this is true with our money. This is true with our, uh, our time, with the skills that God has given us. Uh, it's true with everything that we have. But the more generous we are, the more beautiful that effect can have downrange. And if you invest in the kingdom of God in any sense of the word invest, the kingdom of God is the one place where investments don't crash. The market of God's kingdom doesn't crash. Sometimes it changes. Sometimes it, 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 it uh, might shift in terms of its shape. It might shift in terms of its priorities or anything, or something like that. But what God seeks to accomplish always happens. And so what Paul is doing as he is saying, the more you sow, uh, the, the, the greater wh- uh, you reap. He is not saying you'll get back a certain amount or whatever or a multiplier or something like that. What he is saying is that invest in the kingdom of God in any way you can, in any way you feel uh, led. Because as God takes what you give and takes your generosity, transforms it into his own action and into... Um, into the growing of his kingdom as we minister to others, as we help others, as we walk with them. And in our case, here at Christ Lutheran, as we invest in emerging generations, our youth, our children, our young families, part of our school and congregation.